Hey, I'm Sam. And this is Anuel. And this is Murderous Intention. Okay, so today we're talking about um, Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. I'm going to go right into his early life and education. Um, Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29, 1960. The youngest of Julianne Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, five Ramirez's five children. His father, Julian, a Mexican national and a former Ciudad Juarez policeman, who later became a laborer on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, was an alcoholic who was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in physical abuse towards his wife and children. Um, his full name is Richard Leva Munoz Ramirez. Was the fifth child of the of Mexican immigrants Mercedes and Julian Ramirez. His mother worked at a boot factory, where she was exposed to chemical fumes when she was pregnant with him. All his siblings had birth defects, ranging from respiratory difficulty to bone deformities. At age two, a dresser fell on Richard's head, causing a large forehead laceration. At five years old, he was knocked unconscious from a swing and started experiencing epileptic seizures. Ramirez's life, the night stalker, the life and, and crimes of Richard Ramirez by Philip Carlo, who spent over 100 hours with the, with the killer at San Quentin's prison death row, says Ramirez's, Ramirez claims he's, his father was physically abusive to his entire family. At age 12, Richard, or Richie, as he was known to his family, was strongly influenced by his older cousin, Miguel Mike Ramirez, a decorated Green Beret combat veteran who himself had already became a serial killer and a rapist in Vietnam, who often boasted of his brutal war crimes during the Vietnam War and shared Polaroid photos of his victims both during and after his crimes with his younger cousin Richard, including Vietnamese women he had raped, murdered, and dismembered. Many of the women and girls in the photos are shown to have been bound to trees with rope before Mike raped them and afterward having been killed by him, decapitating them with the machete. In some of the, picture, uh, some of the photos, excuse me, Mike posed with the severed head of women he had sexually assaulted and murdered. Richard would later state his in, excuse me, incarcerated that he was never shocked or repulsed by these images and stories of his cousins <laughs> wartime atrocities in Vietnam, but that they, that they fascinated him. Did I go too far? Yes. I lost it. So, mm -hmm. so isn't it like a sign that most um, murders, they always have like some technical issues mentally. Well, so far, all the um, the uh, serial, um, serial killers, rapists, all have had some type of problem. So, yes, I would agree on that. Um, So Ramirez said that he was never shocked or repulsed by these images and stories of his cousin's wartime atrocities in Vietnam, but that they fascinated him. Richard, who began smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol at the age of 10, bond, bonded with Mike through the, through the two smoking joints and drinking beers, while Richard listened to the elder cousin's gruesome war stories. Mike told his younger cousin some of his... Mike taught, excuse me, Mike taught his younger cousin some of his military skills such as killing with stealth, 
Around this time, Ramirez began to seek escape from his father's violent temper by sleeping in a local cemetery. Richard was present on May 4, 1973, when his cousin Mike Crayley shot his wife, Jessie, in the face with a handgun during a domestic argument. Like the graphic photos and stories of his cousin's war crimes in Vietnam, Richard Ramirez would later similarly remark while in prison that seeing this event unfolded, this event unfolded wasn't traumatic for him in any traditional sense, but rather witnessing a violent death for the first time had deeply fascinated him. He's 10 years old. Yeah. Drinking, smoking weed, and having this serial killer as his mentor. Well, technically, so here's, here's the, the side... I agree with you when you when you call his uncle um, a serial killer, but because he did it during war, they don't classify it like that. True. They I'll consider give you that it like one. collateral damage, you know, which a lot of the, the things that he says that you know he did, um, it's like, dude, no, there's a difference between, you know, what is normally, you know acts of war compared to your fetish you know your weird way of wanting to see a body you know but what's weird to me is that most 10 year olds 12 year olds don't find decapitated women's body fascinating no and then when he was there with when he when Mike killed his wife he also said it, that it had deeply fascinated him so he already started having the thing against females right and then his his father being abusive to his mother was not a great example now his cousin mike doing the same kind of things and it was usually women that he already had raped decapitated before you know so he, he kind of sees a stereotype as women's are not a value. Right. Or at least easy prey. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, after the shooting, Richard became sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers. Later that year, Richard moved in with his older sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto, mm -hmm. an obsessive peeping town, who took Richie along on his nautical exploits. Ramirez also began using LSD and cultivated an interest in Satanism. Mike was found not guilty of Jesse's murder by reason of insanity, largely thought to be due to his presumed severe wartime PTSD from his time serving in Vietnam, and was released in 1977 after four years of incarceration at the Texas State Mental Hospital. So, and I'm stopping here because his father was no good as far as beating his wife. His cousin, even though it was through war, came back with pictures of women that he already had raped and decapitated their bodies and had kind of pictures of their heads for some weird reason. And he moves in to, with his sister and his brother-in-law, who's an obsessive peeping Tom. Like, do you see anywhere where he can escape this? <laughs> It's ridiculous. Um, and then, of course, he was he was using LSD, and he w and he had a cultivated interest in Satanism. Well, that, I think that's also with the fact of him being in the in the cemetery. A lot of at probably at that time, um, a lot of people would do their acts at the cemetery because it was one. It was dark. Nobody in their right mind went to the cemetery at nighttime just because of the fact that it's creepy. It's just like, no. Like, I love the cemetery. Don't get, me, don't get it twisted. But I don't do anything to disturb their resting place. Okay. Um, so his influence over Ramirez continued. And it's unknown that Mike resumed. And his, excuse me. And it's known that Mike resumed occasionally bonding with Richard over a shared use of drugs and alcohol, and that he sometimes 
accompany Richard and Robert on their nighttime walks. Yeah. Uh, where they would spy on women in their nearby areas without their knowledge through windows. The ad adolescent Ramirez began to meld his bludgeoning sexual fantasies with violence, including forced bondage and rape. While still in school, he took a job at a local Holiday Inn where he used his passkey to rob sleeping patrons. On at least one occasion, Ramirez sexually fondled and molested two children in an elevator at the hotel, but was never reported or prosecuted for this act. His employment ended abruptly after Ramirez attempted to rape a woman in her hotel room before her husband returned to find them. Although the husband beat Ramirez senseless at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple, who lived out of state, declined to return to testify against him. Ramirez dropped out of Jefferson High School in the ninth grade at the age of excuse me, at the age of 22 he moved to California where he settled permanently. I thought he dropped out of ninth grade at 22. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, then, buddy, you got issues when you're at 22, so ninth grade. Okay. Okay, so these are his murders. On April 10th, 1984, Ramirez murdered nine-year-old Chinese-American girl Mi Lung, L-E-U-N-G, in the basement of the apartment building where he was living in at the time. In the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Okay. Um, I'm going to call her May because I don't know her last name and I don't want to keep pronouncing it what, wrong. What, the L-U-N-G? Yeah. Um, I think it's Long. Long, okay. Long was with her 8-year-old brother when she reportedly lost a $1 bill and went to look to look for it. When Ramirez approached Long and took the and told the girl he knew where it was and to follow him to the basement. The children agreed and once they were in the basement Ramirez beat, shangled and raped Long before stabbing her to death with a switchblade and hanging her partially nude body from a pipe by her blouse. This Ramirez first known killing was not identified as being connected to his subsequent night stalker crime spree until 2009 when Ramirez's DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. In 2016, officials disclosed evidence of a second suspect identified through DNA sample retrieved from the, from the scene, who is believed to have been present at Loon's murder. Authorities have not publicly identified the, the suspect described as being a juvenile at the time and have not brought charges due to the lack of evidence. The crime likely wasn't connected to Ramirez initially because it didn't fit the same pattern as the rest of his known subsequent murders. The rest of Ramirez's known homicides usually involves him breaking into a home to kill or shoot someone who was in a car or the freeway after stopping them. While Lung was lured to the basement to be killed, so it was, kind of, it was different than what he normally is used to. Um, on June 28, 1984, 1984, excuse me, 79-year-old Jeannie Venko was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly in the head, neck, and chest while asleep in her bed, and her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Ramirez's fingerprints was found on a mesh screen. He removed to gain access to an open window. This Ramirez's second known murder will go on to establish his pattern of breaking into homes, committing particularly vicious murders. And frequently burglarizing his victims either before or after killing them, which was mainly to support his cocaine addiction and pay his rent. So, two murders where he got into an apartment mm -hmm. and all that tells me is that he was going back to his learned from, excuse me, learned yeah. from his peeping town brother-in-law. Yep. 
boy. Okay. Um, continuing on. On March 17, 1985, Maria Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside of her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her garage. She survived when the bullet ricocheted off the key she held in her hands as she lifted them to protect her. Hernandez played dead until Ramirez left the scene. Inside the house, her roommate Dale Yoshi Agazaki, age 34, heard the gunshot and ducked behind the counter when she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen. When she raised her head to get a look, <coughs> excuse me, to get a look at what had happened, he shot Okazaki once in the forehead, killing her instantly. Um, within an hour of the Rosemead home invasion, Ramirez pulled 30-year-old Tassan Lang, Veronica, you. I like Veronica way better. Out of her car in Monterey Park. Shot her twice with the 22 caliber handgun and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. Two murders and attempted third in a single day attracted extensive coverage from the news media, who dubbed the attacker, described as curly hair with bludgeoning eyes and white spaced rotting teeth. The walking killer and the valley intruder. I guess this is what the media named them. <clears throat> On March 27, 1985, Ramirez entered a home that he had burglarized a year earlier just outside of Whittier, California at approximately 2 a.m. and killed the sleeping Vincent Charles Cesaro, age 64. With the gunshot to his head from a 22 caliber handgun, Cesaro's wife, Maxine Davina Cesaro, age 44, was awakened by the gunshot, and Ramirez beat her and bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. While she ransacked the room, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a gunshot, a shotgun, excuse me, from under the bed, which was not loaded. The infuriated Ramirez shot her three times with the 22, then fetched a large carving knife from the kitchen. He mutilated her body by stabbing her several times, then removed her eyes with the knife and placed them in a jewelry box. Oh. Yeah, which he took when he left. And, and kept at his apartment as a Syrania until his arrest. Wait, 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 wait. Mm hmm. The eyeballs that was in. The eyeballs that are in the jewelry box. That is what he kept as a souvenir. Mm hmm. Oh. And when I was seeing the, um, the nice talk on Netflix, mm -hmm. that wasn't his MO. He just killed, bludgeoned, whatever he had to do, get what he needed to get, and was out of there. They think that the reason why he took her eyes is because she was the only one to actually see him. You know, escape yeah. and got to see. So, if she would have got away with it and left, you know, been able to speak to the police, she would have had a perfect um, description and all that to get him. So that's why he took Wasn't her eyes. There, there was this, like a movie in the like an old movie where the killer would do that. He'll take the eyes. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the movie, but I remember some some movie take, some guy taking people's eyes. Yeah, like the last thing he wanted them to see was him, and then he would take their eyes out. And it, it, it got me to the understanding that your eyes actually, after you die, can record 15 minutes. Yeah, that is true. I heard that. And when I say record, it doesn't mean like, oh, you're a computer, so you're recording. It just means that it sees for 15 more seconds, and then it, it just loses the the nerve um, request for it. I also think that's why a lot of people get freaked out when they see a dead body with open eyes. I know I do. I don't. <laughs> that's the difference between you and I, Sammy. <laughs> Okay, so the autopsy determined that the mutilations were post-mortem. Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered by their son, Peter. Ramirez left footprints from a pair of avia sneakers in the flower beds, which the police photographed and cast. 
This was virtually, excuse me, this was virtually the only evidence that the police had at the time. Police found that the scene were matched to those found at previous attacks, and the police determined that a serial killer was at large. On May 14, 1985, Ramirez returned to Monterey Park and entered the home of Bill Doy, age 66, and his disabled wife, Lillian, age 56. Surprising Doy in his bedroom, Ramirez shot him in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol as Doy went from his own handgun. After beating the mortally wounded man into unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs. Never heard of it, but... Oh, yeah. So, um, they're a little, like, a novel. You could get them as a novelty thing. Um, and I know kids like to go and play with it because it's just, like, it's kind of fun. So what it is is just, it's handcuffs that go right on your thumbs, and you just, you're just basically with your thumbs together. So it's a, it's a less space that you can do with your hands. Sammy, I think you were a little too excited about those damn thumb cuffs. <laughs> It's just, I used to play with them when I was a kid, so I know about them. Okay. <laughs> well, after he bound her with the thumb cuffs, then he raped her after he had ransacked the room for valuables. Bill Doy died of his injuries while in the hospital. So, wait. Mm -hmm. So, besides taking her stuff, you know, he decides he's gonna take another valuable thing to all females. <laughs> so he escalated. Yeah. And, and you probably see the more murders he does, the bigger he gets. Because... It's the, the more ballsy he feels. Right, because the cops are not catching him. And you would think after the first, second, maybe third, we ought to you know. And they really weren't. So... So on the night of May 29, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Monova and stopped at the house of Mabel Ma Bell, age 83, and her disabled sister, Florence Nellie Lang, age 81. Finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned her and bound Lang in her bedroom, then bound and bludgeoned Bell before using an electric cord electrical cord to shock the women. After raping Lang, he used Bell's lipstick to draw the satanic pentagram symbol on her thigh as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. The woman found two days later alive, alive but comatose are critically injured. Alive but comatose and critically injured. Bell later died of her injuries in the hospital. Thank you. The dog scared the crap out of me, but it's okay. <laughs> the next Sorry. day, Ramirez drove to the same car to Burbank and sneaked into the home of Carol, Carol Kyle, age 42, at gunpoint. He bound Kyle at her and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs, then ransacked the house. He released Kyle to direct him to where the family's valuables were. He then raped her repeatedly. Ramirez also re repeatedly ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point that he would cut her eyes out. He fled the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and binding the two together again with the handcuffs. On the night of July 2nd, 1985, he drove a stolen car to Arcadia and randomly selected the house of Mary Louise Cannon, age 75, a widowed grandmother. After quietly entering Cannon's home, he found her asleep in the bedroom. He bludgeoned her into unconsciousness with the lamp and then stabbed Cannon to death with a 10-inch butcher knife from her kitchen. Ramirez repeatedly stabbed Cannon's body after she was already dead, she was found dead at the scene. On the night of July 2nd, 1985, he drove a stolen car to Arcadia and randomly selected the house of Mary Louise Cannon, 875, 
a widowed grandmother. After quickly, excuse me, quietly entering Cannon's home, he found her asleep in the bedroom. He bludgeoned her into her consciousness with a lamp, and then stabbed Cannon to death with the ten-inch butcher knife from her kitchen. Ramirez repeatedly stabbed Cannon's body after she was already dead. She was found dead at the scene. On July 5th, 1985, Ramirez broke into her home in Sierra Madre and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with the tire iron. As she slept in her bedroom, after searching in vain, in vain for a knife in the kitchen, Ramirez tried to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. He stated that he was startled to see electrical sparks emanate from the cord. And when his victim began to breathe, he fled the house believing that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. Bennett survived the savage beating and attempted strangulation. Although 478 stitches were required to close the laceration to her scalp. On July 7, 1985, Ramirez burglarized the home of Joyce Louis, um, Lucille Nelson, age 60, in Monterey Park, finding her asleep on her living room couch. He beat her to death by stomping on her face repeatedly. A shoe print from an aviator sneaker was left imprinted on her face. After cruising two other neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park and chose the home of Sophia Dickman, age 63. Ramirez assaulted and handcuffed Dickman at gunpoint, attempted to rape her and stole her jewelry. When he swore, excuse me, when she swore to him that he had taken everything of value, he told her to swear on Satan. On July 20, 1985, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving a stolen Toyota to Glendale, California. He chose the home of Leah Kenning, age 66, and her husband, Maxon, age 68. Her burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them with the machete, then killed them with shots to the head from a 22 caliber handgun. He further mutilated the bodies with the machete before robbing the house of valuables. After quickly fencing the stolen items from the Kenning residence, Ramirez drove to Sun Valley. At approximately 4.15 a.m., he broke into the home of the, I can't even say his name, Corvantius family? Corvantes family? Uh, um, um, I'm guessing, guys. I want guys. to say the K family. The K family, that sounds good. Um, he shot the sleeping K CK. I don't know, these are really horrible words for me. I think they're like Russian or. <sighs> okay, Sam trying to scare the crap out of me today. It wasn't on purpose, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, um, in the head with a 25 caliber handgun, killing him instantly. Then repeatedly raped and beat some kid, K. He bound the couple's eight-year-old son before dragging some kid around the house to reveal the location of, his, of any valuable items, which he stole. During his assault, he demanded that she sweared to Satan that she was not hiding any money from him. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, on August 6, 1985, Ramirez drove to Northridge and broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. He crept into the bedroom, started Virginia, age 27, and shot her in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the neck and attempted to flee. Chris fought back while avoiding being hit by two more shots during the struggle before Ramirez managed to escape. The couple survived their injuries. On August 8, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California and, and chose the home of Sakina. There we go with these last names again. Abarath? Yeah, Zakina Abarath. Age 27, and her husband, Elias Aberath, age 31. 
Sometime after 2.30 a.m., he entered the house and went into the master bedroom. He instantly killed the sleeping Elias with a shot to the head from his 25 caliber handgun. He handcuffed and beat Sakina while forcing her to reveal the locations of the family jury, and then brutally raped her. He repeatedly demanded that she sweats on Satan that she would not scream during his assault. When the couple's three-year-old son entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and then continued to rape Sakina. After Ramirez left the home, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. And getting back to the thing that you said, he's really getting ballsy now. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's, he left a couple people still alive and you would think that they can go to the cops and, you know, give them some type of description. And even though it, I, we later find out that they did, but it, it, it kind of looks like them, but not like him, but not really. But also the thing is, at the moment, he's seen as there's no, there's no real big, you know, alarm to him. Yeah. So, the more of it being, you know, he's hearing his crimes on the TV and the radio and everything like that, but no accuracy on point, pinpointing it to him, you know. Yeah. He's like, well, whatever. Yeah. Might as well go big. And he is going which big. Is, which is not cool, but... I guess if you're into the psych psycho things. Really? Okay. Ramirez, who had been following the media coverage of his crimes, apparently he's not stupid, um, left Los Angeles and headed to San Francisco. On August 18, 1985, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot the sleeping Peter, age 66, into the temple with a 25 caliber handgun, which killed him instantly. He then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, age 62, before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipsticks to scroll a pentagram and the phrase, Jack the Knife, on the bedroom wall. Ramirez again left a shoe print at the scene that detectives discovered and matched a specific pair of avia shoes that wasn't, that wasn't common at that time. Um, lead detectives Frank Sol Soliano and Gil Carrillo who contributed to Netflix's Night Stalker, they were fantastic, The Hunt of a Serial Killer, contacted the manufacturer of Avia Shoes and were able to retrieve the soles. Upon discovering of the make and dis distribution across the United States, only six of them existed in the size 11 and a half, where five of them shipped to locations in Arizona and one shipped to a, shore, excuse me, a shoe store in Los Angeles. It was evident that the one pair of its size and kind in, that in the state of California then belonged to Ramirez. When it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from the Los Angeles crime scenes matched the pan crime scene, San Francisco then Mayor Diane Feinstein divulged the information, including the gun caliber in a televised press conference. The leak infuriated the detectives in the case and they knew the killer would be following media coverage, which gave him opportunity to, to destroy cru crucial forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had indeed been watching the press, dropped his size 11 and a half area sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. He remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to the Los Angeles area. When I saw that on that um, Netflix show, the Netflix, um, yeah. That pissed me off. Like, why would the mayor go on air and tell all the details of that, of this particular yeah. crime spree? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, he's listening to it. He's, he's, he's covering his tracks, as they would say. <clears throat> so, it was kind of, I thought it was stupid in her part, but that's why he got rid of the that's why he got rid of the area sneakers and never to yeah. be found again. Um, on, each, on August 24, 1985, Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo. That night, he arrived at the, same, at the home of James Ramirez Jr., 
who had just returned from a family vacation in Rosario Beach, Rosario Beach, me, in Mexico. Ramirez's son, 13-year-old James Romero III, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking there was a problem, James went to wake his parents and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color, make, and style of the car, as well as a partial license plate number. Romero contacted the police with this information, believing James had chased away a thief. After the encounter, Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes, age 30, and his fiancée, Ines Eckerson, age 29, through a back door. Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened Carnes when he clocked his 25 caliber handgun. He shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told her that he was the nice stalker and forced her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fist and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Erickson Eckerson to another room before raping her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry and made her swear to answer in. There was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Eckerson, tell them the nice stalker was here. Eckerson untied herself and went to a neighbor's house to get help for her severely injured fiance. Surgeons removed two of the three bullets from his head and he survived his injuries. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, identification of Ramirez. Eckerson gave a detailed description of the assailant to investigator, and police obtained a, ca a cast of Ramirez's footprint from the Romero from, uh, from the Romero house. The stolen car was found abandoned on August 28th in Koreatown. Los Angeles, and police obtained a single fing um, fingerprint from the rear view mirror despite Ramirez's careful effort to wipe the car clean of his prints. The print was positively identified as belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas, with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. <coughs> and the 29th, on 29 August 1985, wow, that sounded weird. August 29, 1985, law enforcement officers decided to release a mugshot of Ramirez from a 1994 arrest for auto theft to the media. And the night stalker finally had a face. At the police press conference, he was announced, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. You gonna say anything? Yeah, because oh, this God. is when he's gonna get his ass beat. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at me like, what are you doing? I know you're gonna say something. Say it. <laughs> okay, so there were other suspects, other suspected additional victims. On the night of June 27, 1985, 32-year-old Patty Elaine Higgins was murdered in her Arcadia home. The crime was not discovered until July 2nd, Damn. when she did not show up for work. Her attacker had sodomized her, strangled her, and slashed her throat. Ramirez was charged with murder and burglary in relation to Higgins' murder. However, the charges against him in this case were eventually dropped due to a lack of concrete physical evidence linking the Higgins murder to the Night Stalker crime, given <coughs> that Ramirez dragged, excuse me, Given that Ramirez bragged to other inmates about having killed more than 20 people while incarcerated, and the fact that it took 25 years to connect him to the April 1990, 1990 wow, April 1984 rape and murder of a nine-year-old Mei Ling in San Francisco, it is possible that Richard Ramirez committed more murders than the 15 homicides and investigators and the, and the public are currently aware of, and that these other killings simply have yet to be conclusively linked to Ramirez. However, this currently remains unknown and has yet to be definitely proven. 
So now we go to the capture. On August 30, 1985, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, unaware that he had become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news programs across California. After failing to meet his brother, he returned to Los Angeles early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus and into a convenience store in East Los Angeles. So they were expecting him on an outbound bus, but he already had left and he's coming in, he back in. Right. After noticing a group of elderly Hispanic women fearfully, ad fearfully identifying him as El Matador, the killer in Spanish, Ramirez saw his face on the front pages on the newspapers rack and fled the store in a panic. After running across the San Ana Freeway, excuse me, Santa Ana Freeway, he attempted to carjack the woman but was chased away by bystander who pursued him. After hopping over several fences and attempting two more carjacking, carjackings, he eventually subdued by a group of residents, one of whom had struck him over the head with a fence post in the pursuit. The group of enraged citizens had held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him until the police arrived and took him into custody. That's what you were talking about. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like, I've never been excited about somebody getting their ass beat, but yeah, it was, it was really like, woo! I mean, I'm, really ca I'm really happy that, um, that it was a citizen arrest. Mm. You know, like, it's hardly the chance, and usually police don't want you to do it. But when there's so many of you, you know, just get them and beat them yeah, up. Yeah, we, we can grab them while you get your butt over here. <laughs> yeah. No more, we got them until you get over here. All right, now so. How he, how he comes up to you, that's a different story. Yeah. Because <laughs> usually they say that he is, um, what's the word that the police use? Um. Uh, he's armed and dangerous. Armed and dangerous, right. Okay, trial and conviction. Jury selection for the trial began on July 22nd, 1988 at his first court appearance. Mm -hmm. Ramirez raised a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan! On August 3rd, 1988. The Los Angeles Times reported that some Joe employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to have sm uh, smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside and intensive searches were conducted on people entering. On August 14th, the trial had, was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. The jury was terrified, wondering if Ramirez had shown um, directed. Excuse me, wondering if Ramirez had somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell, and whether or not he could reach other jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for Singletary's death, as he was, excuse me, as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. The alternate juror who replaced Singletary was too frightened to return to her home. On September 20, 1989, Ramirez was convicted of all charges. Ramirez was convicted of all charges, 13 counts of murder, five, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial on November 7, 1989, he was sentenced to die in California, California's gas chamber. He stated to reporters after, after the death sentences, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. The trial cost $1.8 million, um, $3.76 million in 2020 dollars. Damn. That's a lot of money. To Disneyland. He could really, with that much money, yeah. <laughs> Which at the time made it the most expensive in the history of California until 
until surpassed by O.J. Simpson murder case in 1994. Oh, O.J., you gotta always outdo somebody. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he actually had the dream team. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so... That, that's what costs a lot of money. Okay. Um, romantic relationship. Um, by the time of the child, Ramirez had friends who were writing him letters and paying him visits. Beginning in 1985, Doreen Loy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. In 1988, Ramirez proposed to Loy and on October 3rd, 1996, they were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. Uh, is that an ideal place to get married? What, San Quentin? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know? Yeah, I thought so. That's <laughs> the next best thing to go into Las Vegas and get married to a complete stranger. And then 15 minutes later saying, hey, can I get an enrollment? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, for many years before... I knew she was going to come in too. I knew she was going to say something. Um, for many years before Ramirez's death, Lloyd sta stated that she would commit suicide when Ramirez was ex executed. Okay. However, well, Lloyd... Dummy in the world. Right. Uh, Lloyd eventually left Ramirez in 2009 after DNA confirmed he was raped and... He raped and murdered Nanyuo Mi Ling. Okay, so she was going to kill herself until she found out that the little girl, nine-year-old girl... Was raped and murdered. Okay. So at least she had... So she woke up. Some type of sense. Right. By the time of his death in 2013, Ramirez was engaged to Christine Lee, a 22-year-old writer. So he didn't wait too long, huh? No. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. This is, this is crazy. Like, being honest, if he didn't have his track record that he had... Um, and he had better teeth. Um, he's not a. He wasn't a bad-looking guy. No, and and his child. Um, he had a lot of fans. He when he had a lot of fans, and he didn't look that bad. No. I have to say, he didn't open his I like mouth. He, I like how he looked when he had the sunglasses on. Right, that's what it I'm saying. It reminded me of like back in the day, the the, the cop shows. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On August 7, 2006, Ramirez's first round of state appeals ended unsuccessfully when the California Supreme Court, court excuse me, upheld his convictions and death sentence. On September 7, 2006, the California Supreme Court denied his request for a rehearing. Ramirez had additional appeals pending until the time of his death. Um, mental health. Psychiatrist Michael H. Stone described Ramirez as a made psychopath as opposed to a born psychopath. And I would agree with that because mm -hmm. if it wasn't for his cousin and his brother-in-law, as bad as that situation was and, and his mother having working in the boot factory with all those fumes, yeah. he had problems already from the day he was born. But Mike and his brother-in-law had a real impact on him, I, I believe. Okay, guys, um, I'm going to repeat the mental health because I'm not sure where I left off. So, um, psychiatrist Michael H. Stone discussed. Well, we just take a break. And we did just take a break. I'm sorry. So I lost the not you know. Um Psychiatrist <laughs> Michael H. Stone described Ramirez as a made psychopath as opposed to a, bone, a born psychopath. Um, he says that Ramirez's schizo personality disorder contributed to his indifference to the suffering of his victims and his untreatability. Stone also stated that Ramirez was knocked unconscious and almost died on multiple occasions before he was six years old, and as a result, later developed temporal lobe epilepsy, aggressivity, and hypo excuse me, hypersexuality. Which is a lot, I mean... That's a lot of things. Yeah, especially when they said that um, on multiple occasions he was hurt and unconscious at, before the age well, of I six. Well, I know, like, um, there, was, uh, there was one thing that you'll see on, like, the Netflix episode mm -hmm. um, where they say, like, uh, he fell off the swing and then it hit him in the head. Right. 
So, because those continuous hits and... Then, then he had a dresser that fell on top of it. And his head area. Which I'm surprised he survived that, you know. That's true. Okay, so now we're going to uh, speak about his death. Ramirez died of complications secondary to B cell lymphoma at Marine General Hospital in Greenbrae, California. On June, September, excuse me, June, September, wow, June 7th, 2013, he had also been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. That's a lot too, wow. At age 53 years old, he has been he has been on death row for more than 23 years. By some estimates, he would have been in his early 70s before his execution was carried out due to California's lengthy appeals process. So he kind of got... He got a punishment. He got a punishment, but at the same time, it wasn't as long as it would have been if he wasn't sick. No, what I'm saying is... He got a punishment. He wanted to play with the whole, you know, um, state and thing. Which, granted, everybody's entitled to their own religion. Mm -hmm. Fine. Yeah. So be it. Not going to go and offend anybody with it, okay? Right. You practice whatever, fine. Coolies. But when you're practicing it and you're harming others, that's where I feel you're stepping over the border. So whatever comes at you and takes you, that's your own fault because you decided to dabble and take other lives that now you have a punishing a punishment from and I, I'll say better you have punishment from mother nature and earth yeah Boom. I agree let's not put religion into it let's just say hey because of how society is and how we have everything now you have the sickness but the thing is in the 1980s also um He's lucky he didn't have AIDS, because AIDS was a big epidemic in the that 80s. Is true. You know, um, having cancer, because I know, I think that's what B cell lymphoma is, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. Yeah, it's a cancer. And then he had hepatitis C on top of it, which, you know, it's not. Which messes with your, your liver. Which meant, right. He could have had a whole lot, you know, more worse things done to The people that got him could have killed him. Before he even got, went to trial, sure. which honestly, if it was me, I probably would have tried to kill. You know, like they're beating him up. I'm, I'm looking for something else. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <I don't bring laughs> <an asshole. laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I have two little quick points that I just want to make sure we knew. You know, we reiterate, I guess. Okay. Um. So many anybody that has seen this on Netflix and had. Okay, so Richard Ramirez was named the Night Stalker during an editorial bump session at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Mm -hmm. Among the many banded names during the meeting was The Walking Killer and The Screen Door Intruder, each referencing the ease in which the killer accessed the victim's home. Although there was no evidence at the time that Ramirez was stalking each victims nor were there any published um, satanic links to the crimes Adams decided to dub the killer as the Night Stalker based on the 1972 TV movie and show series about the Las Vegas newspaper, newspaper reporter investigating a series of murders committed by a vampire okay that's how they got that name those names um, what can I say? Um, the secret behind Ramirez's flawless courtroom smile. Okay. Um, that was true. He did have a... Okay. On September 3rd, 1985, less than a week after his arrest, Richard Ramirez went to, his, to see a prison dentist. Over a period of nine months, during Alfred Otero's... Hack, excuse me. Over a period of nine months, Months, Dr. Alfred Otero had repaired nine badly rotten teeth, filling them with a compound substance. Ramirez's dental hygiene was an issue starting at a young age. The killer would start his day drinking Coca Cola and eating sugar covered cereal. 
According to Ramirez's childhood friend and classmate Ray Garcia, he never brushed his teeth. I used to tell him to close his mouth or brush his teeth. The lack of hygiene and his sweet tooth combined with the damaging oral effects of drugs caused his teeth to decay heavily. Well, he has stinky breath. Yes. And even his, his friend said, listen, you got to either close your mouth or brush your teeth. That's a problem. Um, so that is everything I have on Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. The Night Stalker. Um, and this, this again, is one of these um, serial killers that I felt bad for in the beginning. Yeah. And then I hated him at the end. <clears throat> well, that's normally what happens, though, is, you know... But a lot, what I felt like, one damn, really good looking guy. Why you gotta be such a monster? Let's use that word, monster. Mm -hmm. You know? And then the thing is also, is that, how do I put this? He, he could, if he raised by better people mm -hmm. and had better role models. Yeah. He could have became somebody way better in life. And this is like what we say some, about most of our um, serial killers yeah. nowadays. Even back then. If they were raised better or they had better situations, they would have been okay. I think like maybe our only... I, I want to say maybe Jeff Dunham is probably, like, I think, the only serial killer who had an, a good upbringing in a way mm -hmm. you know um but when it comes to this this dude he he didn't really have a chance no he he started life on the wrong side as far as yeah. his mother um messed up all her kids with either brain problems or bone um, deformity so you know sucking all the fumes is no good for a pregnant lady no um and then the role models he had was had to be the worst I've ever seen, ever. Most definitely. You know, uh, a, a Vietnam, Vietnamese war um, veteran that comes back with trophies of his killings, especially after he raped women and taking off their heads. I'm like, what kind of role model is this? And then he leaves that situation and goes to live with his um, sister and her husband is uh, notorious peeping town. I think that's where he got looking at houses before he attacks them, you know, yeah. before he gets in them, opens windows, leaves footprints. All that's because of the brother-in-law of his. Yeah, the, yeah. And it's... See, the thing is, at the end of the day, you could say, oh, well, he had a choice. How much... What else could he have done? His upbringing was bad. All he knew was the negative stuff. Right. Who was going to show him the positive? You know, how to be a an actual civilian. You know? It, even the person that you would normally think would be have the most influence on you was a bad influence, his father. He was a drunk, you know, and beat him, beat him his wife and his other siblings yeah. because he was drunk all the time. I mean, that's... It's, it's a no-win situation. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, and I understand we all have families, um, uncles, whatever you want to call them, that have, you know, they're not, not the best situation for you. Yeah. But it's not situations that you're always with them. Which, in this case, he was. Yeah. Um, so, like we always say, you can email us about cases or your opinions or things you want to hear or you want to discuss with us at murdersintention21 at gmail.com. <laughs> you can hear us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor. I think we're on Apple Podcasts. Um, Breaker? Or no? no, 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 no,
Murderous underscore intentions underscore podcast. E 